Hello Podbeans, Holly here. You may be able to hear the rain dripping around my living room, but that sound is in direct juxtaposition to this message because I have some awesome news. Diversify has its first sponsor. Yes! We have been sponsored by the theatre company Tramp, which will enable us to transcribe every single one of our season one episodes. Obviously, being a podcast celebrating diversity, we wanted to make it as accessible as possible and inclusive to everyone. And there are over 150,000 deaf people in the UK and nearly 9 million hard of hearing people. So we thought it was important the podcast was inclusive to them too. Transcripts of season one are coming soon and we will keep you up to date as and when they are here. Also, a little heads up of future guests. Jack Silver, who is the artistic director of Tramp Theatre Company, will be popping by for an episode of Diversify, and he is bringing with him Libby Welsh, who is a co-writer on several projects with him and star of a show about disability and representation that they're taking to Edinburgh next year. So we will be having a chat with them in future weeks. If you're interested in Tramp Theatre Company, you can find them on Twitter at WeAreTramp. And we'd just like to say a massive thank you to all our listeners and also Jack and Libby and Tramp for supporting us and helping us reach a wider audience and spread the love. Now, enjoy this next episode, which is Conversations with a Lobbyist. What? A lobbyist? Yeah, a lobbyist. Turn out the light, open the curtains. Go and do things you And I'm Kate. And this is Diversify. How are you, Kate? I'm okay. How are you? Where are you going with this? Uh, It is merely a moment where one friend asks another friend how they might be this fine evening. I'm okay. I am like the huge, uh, I dare to say, majority of the population that has a very long day at work, comes home, and the last thing they want to talk about is politics. And I'm like the other part of the uh, population who has a long day at work and still always wants to talk about politics and fancies a beer. So tonight I will be supping, supping a Newcastle brown ale, which I have not drunk since 2013. (laughs) Segway, our guest today. Hello. Well, attempted segue. Uh, I think you'll find that the next thing that is about to happen is we're about to ask our guest who they are. So therefore the segue is complete. Hello guest, who are you? Hi, hi, um, my name's Connie. I, uh, I'm, I'm a lobbyist and I'm here today to talk about politics. Oh, you said you were a lobbyist. That's, that's, I thought the first thing you said to me about your job is, I'm not allowed to say I'm a lobbyist. <laughs> it's like Fight Club. Well, I've not given you my last name, so hopefully I'll still have a job by the end of this evening. (laughs) Question number one, the fuck is a lobbyist? Yeah, I knew this would be an issue. People often have a bit of a, they have a strong reaction. Well, they they either have a non-reaction where they have no idea what that means, or they spit at you. It's, It's a similar reaction to telling 
someone you're an estate agent or a... Recruitment. <gasps> oh, yeah. I'd like to think that I'm a bit more glamorously evil than recruiters. I think that... <laughs> recruiters are just yeah. passively evil. The lobbying business are just actively <laughs> evil. Okay. How are recruiters evil? They're not evil. They're passive, I think, is a better word. Um, I'm so sorry to any recruiters, but I you can very don't disagree. I'm sure recruiters don't like actors either, you know? No one likes yeah. actors. <laughs> And that was diversified. Thank you for shooting in. And that's the moment Kate quit the podcast. Tell us then, because I think I understand what it is sort of. And then if somebody were to ask me what the hell a lobbyist is, I'd be like, hmm, I have no idea. I did a play once where we were lobbyists and I was a recent graduate and decided that I couldn't be bothered to do a lot of research into this role that I played. You know, I almost thought for a second you were going to do that actor thing where you're like, I was in a play once where I played a lobbyist and therefore I just think I understand what it means to be a lobbyist because <laughs> I was a lobbyist for like one and a half minutes every night, eight times a week. But in fact, you said the opposite. So I didn't realise actors did that. I know what it's like to live in World War One. I. I won't comment because I'm not one of you, so... But you are a lobbyist, so tell us, what's a lobbyist? Um, basically, we run around trying to massage public policy and uh, legislation, the law, politics, in the right direction for our clients. We try to influence politicians and policy in a way that will benefit them. Are you like... A lobbyist for the Labour Party, a lobbyist for the Green Party. Is it like a party mm, thing or is it mm. literally a client? No, it could it could never be a party thing because we as lobbyists need to use all the resources available to us in politics, which means that we could never restrain ourselves to saying, well, we're only going to seek the support of one party or another because it depends very much on the client that you're working for. For instance, if you were lobbying for a charity seeking government funding, a good way to go about that would be to approach a Conservative minister with an interest in what that charity did and you know, engage with them, look for their support, convince them of the worthiness of the course and so on. But something you really wouldn't want to do in that case would be to, say, approach a Labour MP and tell them, the government isn't funding this, we're, we're seeking this support, etc. The Labour MP might then be very tempted to bring it up in the next parliamentary debate or submit a question, basically using it as a kind of bat with which to thwack the government. And you're really very unlikely to get the funding then if you've embarrassed them. So that's a reason why you have to be flexible. If, on the other hand, a client isn't seeking funding or is wanting to bring an issue uh, to light, raise, raise a certain topic and doesn't particularly care about funding or, uh, I don't know, government support in general, then you might very well slip an opposition MP a bit of evidence or something to bring up in the next parliamentary debate. So you have to really play it by ear according to what you're trying to achieve. Wow. It's like House of Cards with tea and biscuits. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> tea and biscuits. So if I wanted to change a law about gender inequality, mm. you would be the person that I'd come to and then you would talk to the politicians. Yeah. The greasy middleman. I don't know if either of you has been to Parliament. Have you seen it? I went with my friend to the Parliament Bar, which is basically, and correct me if I'm wrong, a very 
dirty old pub that sells cheap beer. Mm, yeah, that was the sports and social. That was a good night. It's a grubby pub. Yeah, I think I think you're not doing it justice. It's a really grubby pub. <laughs> Is it a really grubby pub filled with posh old white men? Let's not make a judgement that everyone who works in Parliament is a posh old white man. I will have you know that there were lots of young white men in Parliament and a few women. Mm. Well, some of us made it in. Some of us. But I think it's about 40% now of MPs who are, who are women now, so it's, it's certainly better. It's certainly better. I mean, the sports and social is traditionally, it used to be more of a Labour pub, so most Labour MPs and special advisors and this kind of thing, they would, they would flock there. There are other bars in Parliament which Tories will tend to go to. Wine bars? Cocktail bars? Yeah, you'll get more of that sort of thing in Strangers Bar, for instance. I mean, Whiskey? Yeah, naturally. Yeah. Parliament, it's it's a lot. It's sad actually, anyway, because it used to be completely awash with booze, and now it's their stock has gone down. Um, they sold it off. I, I think. heard about this. Yeah, yeah. They used to have such a great seller. They still do. It's just it's gone down, and I think it was. I mean, it was definitely in the last century where cheeky MPs and peers sort of realised the amazing. A treasure trove of, of wines that they were sat on and would sell them, you know, at a profit. And of course, because they were completely underpriced inside Parliament, booze inside Parliament was always kept cheap. And uh, so some people took advantage, and now a lot of that cellar is God knows where now. Yeah. Basements of insert Tory here. Mm. Booze Mate. and politics. Yeah, Pity booze. there are fewer alcoholics now. It's, it's a terrible. Shame. It's dried up. Does it it's make awful. it harder as a lobbyist that there are now less people drunk in Parliament? Mm. <laughs> I don't know. That's actually a really good question because you go to receptions and events and things, and we do organise events and receptions in Parliament. And I think the draw of free booze there, it's useful for us. You're more likely to get people from MPs or peers' offices come along if they know they'll get, you know, free flute of champagne or whatever. It's definitely yeah. true. I am much more likely to go along to an event if someone goes champagne reception. That has been very dangerous for me in the past. <laughs> Sorry, there are so many stories that come to mind. Can you tell any stories? Uh, the only one I'll tell is about myself. I mean, the number of times I've been a bit wasted in Parliament because you've organised an event on an empty stomach and, you know, the catering staff are so lovely, they keep trying to slip your drinks, you know, while you're organising your event and by the end of it you're completely legless, but you have to carry on. I did that at a press okay. night once. Good for you. <laughs> Long <silence. laughs> Why not at every press night? Once! Uh, because, because acting is a very serious industry as well and you want people to take you seriously, but I, I think I may have drank one too many glasses of wine that time and decided not to do that again. Insert weird noise where she goes into her spiral shame. <laughs> I mean, I think I remember someone saying something about the smoke machine and King Leah and me going, there was a smoke machine? Guys, we now know it was King Lear, just saying. <laughs> so, moving on. Yes, so the reason that we have invited the wonderful Connie onto this particular podcast is because there are a lot of people who maybe want to know more about politics, but when you hear people talking about it, especially in the news, maybe uh, on a podcast or read about it in the newspaper, there are bits in your knowledge missing and you cannot really understand the full scope of what's actually happening. For instance... When they said there was a hung parliament, put your hand up if you had no idea what that meant. Um, 
Yeah, Kate just put her hand up. And I really hope everybody else did too in public spaces where they're listening to this podcast. (laughs) I knew what a hung parliament was. How did you know what a hung parliament was? Um, how? Yeah. Um, I am quite interested in politics. Um, I got fascinated in the original Obama election in American politics. And then it was actually only a couple of years ago when I started getting more interested in British politics in a party level. In particular, I found this last election one of the most fascinating things I have ever seen politically. Theresa May had an absolute... She thought it was going to be a roast and it all just fell apart and it went from how badly is everyone else going to lose the election to a hung parliament and I did not see that coming. I don't know if you did, Connie. No, no. I think there was only one polling organisation that predicted the outcome. Everyone else was completely wrong. We all assumed that it would be a sweeping Conservative victory and how wrong we were. It arguably turned out a lot worse for not having been a victory because now we're in this strange position where we're beholden to the DUP. So, Can you explain a little bit to people who maybe heard about the DUP but don't really understand what this kind of, some might call it a coalition of chaos, mm. is? Yeah, so basically, I mean, I suppose I have to go back to the nature of a hung parliament, really. The Conservatives didn't get the majority requisite for having for being in government. You need to win at least 326 seats in order to have a majority in Parliament. Seats being MPs. Yes. In constituencies. Yeah. And they lost, they were, I think, eight seats short of that number. I think it came, so what's 326 minus eight? Yeah, 318 seats. So they just lost it. And that meant that in order to form a government, they needed to create a coalition with another party so that they'd achieve at least that number of seats. Obviously, they weren't going to make a coalition with Labour, the Liberal Democrats, the Green Party, UKIP. Uh, really, the offers on the table weren't weren't promising. I mean, from the perspective of the Conservatives, their choices were extremely limited. So the DUP it was, with conditions. And they are a very religious... Mm. Oh, which side of... Oh, God, I'm so bad at my Irish. The DUP are Catholic or Protestant? I think they're Protestant. They're Protestant. Protestant. Very against abortion. Very against most rights that I hold dear um, as a gay woman. And I think it's one of those examples where people go, oh, yeah, okay, the DUP don't sound that great, but what difference does it really make? Mm. Well, it really does make a difference, Mm. considering Ireland still doesn't have abortion rights. And gay marriage doesn't have gay marriage either, I think. They're allowed to just opt out of that. There is a fantastic, and I am a huge fan of this woman, there is a fantastic Stacey Dooley documentary on the DUP and the reasons why people voted for the DUP in Northern Ireland. And most of the people, the majority of the people that she found and spoke to do not agree with a lot of their stances that they take on these particular subjects. They just vote because they don't have a better option. I don't mean to debunk the myth that the DUP will, you know... There is, of course, the danger that they do have sway over Conservative policy. Of course they do. But the nature of the agreement with the Conservatives is that they only... They have to vote with them on big issues. So the Brexit bill, for instance, which is currently going through um, the Houses of Parliament, the DUP will always vote with the government on that. They also have to vote with the government 
in terms of the budget. So every time the budget is announced while this government lasts, the DUP will be by the government side. But on other issues, social issues, the contract between them ends, basically. I think coalition is a kind of... It's a simple way of phrasing it, but their relationship isn't as close as we should assume, basically. And even though they have, in the past, held the government ransom, so when Theresa May went to Brussels last year about to make important agreements with the EU, um, Jean-Claude Juncker, there we go, um, ahead of discussions between these two, then the DUP intervened because they are invested in a hard Brexit. They want the hardest Brexit possible. Um, The DUP? Yeah, the DUP. That's so weird to Mm, me. That feels like it would mess everything up then. Yeah, they're, they're Brexiteers, so this is causing significant strain and they are exerting, they basically are in a, in a position to exert pressure on Theresa May and the Cabinet in that sense. But they are not as bound inside the House of Commons to the Conservatives as many people might believe. It's on Brexit and the budget that we should be most concerned about the DUP, really. Can I just ask one quick question? Because Zach, our first guest that we ever had on this podcast... He came on and talked to us about proportional representation. Mm. So anyone who's listened to the first episode has a vague knowledge on proportional representation. So it's amount of MPs compared to amount of votes as opposed to what we have at the moment, which is called first past the post, which doesn't always work out that way and can end up in some constituencies. People's votes don't really count in in a concrete way. What's your personal view on proportional representation are you pro it i mean i suppose you'll have you'll take a different view on this according to which party you support i mean i used to be um a bit of a lib dem i I think people call me a lib lab actually because i've flip-flopped from liberal democrat heaven to, to to just labor despair now but basically if you i mean for instance okay let's take the liberal democrats they do have well, they did. Uh, I think we'll take it back two years, three years, four years. There um, were better times. There were better times. There was a time when they had so many voters spread across the country. They didn't have the right number of MPs to show that because of proportional representation. It doesn't matter how many voters you have overall. If they aren't strong enough in individual constituencies, then that candidate won't get that seat. So, you know, it's a question of concentration, basically. You need a concentration of votes. And... I don't know. I mean, the advantages of first past the post is that you'll tend to avoid coalition situations because we are we have this system to ensure that we don't have too many MPs from different parties or getting getting in a fluster in, in the House of Commons and not being able to agree anything. The advantage of this system is that it ensures a certain kind of stability in government, basically. And the great irony is, every time I, I know live House of Commons, I'm just like... Why is everyone shouting all the time? Yeah. Are you supposed to be on the same side? So you're kind of like, it depends and you're not too sure. Mm. Basically, it limits the number of parties you'll have represented, sorry, represented in the Commons. So if we were to take an example of proportional representation gone mad, a really good example would be Germany in the 1920s and 30s, um, early 30s. Oh God! Before Hitler that came went to power, so well. that's yeah. Their, their idea after the First World War was, you know, okay, let's have democracy. Let's be as democratic as possible, and theirs was proportional. So you had an enormous number of parties re- represented in in their parliament. I think the number stretched to, I don't know, somewhere near twenty. 
Um, but the, the result was that no decisions were made and it left for a very weak government, which is partly how the Nazi party was able to assert itself and move in. It was very easy to stage a coup against a government that didn't have that was made of a coalition, a coalition of so many parties you couldn't agree on anything. That's the most um, radical example there is, really. Um, it's not really fair, I've just sort of dropped that bomb. But that is, in theory, what First Past the Post is designed to avoid. But then you've also got the polar opposite of that in America, where it's two-party system, yes. and we've still got a Nazi. Yeah. <laughs> Those camps, eh? I mean, detention centres, yeah. yeah. Well, Ouch. slam dunk. No, I didn't know that about Germany, and I, I feel like, for me, the most democratic thing is the most democratic thing, and you'd end up having more UKIP MPs, I'm sure, and you'd have a few BNP MPs, yeah. but you'd also have a lot more green. So it was very interesting to hear how it's worked out in the past, and no matter what happens, we get the Nazis. <laughs> I believe that a lot of people who will be listening to this particular podcast will be more left inclined. It is important to listen to the opinions of people who are also left and progressive that might want different things because they have information that they feel is more important than this or that. Um, how can we get out of our own self and society made echo chamber and inform ourselves in a more balanced way and come up with our own opinions and our own understanding i would definitely recommend putting down the guardian the copy of the guardian that you're currently holding and branching out because let's face it a lot of a lot of the listeners will probably be guardian readers sorry mum I, I i love it I, I love the guardian it's great and i mean i i really don't agree with many of the things in there but if i want my own sort of my general views on the eu and tolerance and i don't know social inequality if i want to see those views in print somewhere other than in my diary i will go to the guardian and it'll be fantastic because i'll feel validated and i'll feel very safe in the knowledge that i am right but i would suggest branching out if only to know thine enemy really go out and buy yourself a copy of the spectator the mail the telegraph because i think enclosing yourself in a world in which everyone will tend to agree with you and have the same views is, is a very dangerous thing even on the left even when we are right you do need to experience a diversity of opinion and that's what i suggest in the immediate it's interesting because i have discussions with my mother a lot where she's like you guys don't read the news like we do and I'm like fine you read a newspaper but I read an article about an issue and then I read four other articles and a lot of the time they're like the Daily Mail and the Sun so I'm seeing all of this stuff and I'm seeing quite how fascist this shit gets but at the same time I don't really want to give them the clicks. I can't bring myself to give my money to a newspaper that the UN Commission of Human Rights deems that problematic. Mm. But do you think it's more important to kind of dabble in that aspect? Be like, okay, I'm giving money to that, but at least I know what's going on. Or is there a middle ground? Because I am so stuck reading some male articles and stuff and hating on them but knowing that my very act of giving them another click is exactly what they want because it's clickbait which means advertisers which means more money which means more clicks which means more fascism which means more hatred mm. and these 
horrible publications that it's not freedom of speech it's hate speech so how do we do that how do we find that middle ground basically Mm. can i just say there are publications that do have a more maybe centrist middle ground i mean for instance the times okay you can read the times and get an idea of what assuming that you're left-wing the other side are feeling without it being it it being hateful and propaganda based Mm. Yeah, it will depend on the columnist and, and you know, yeah. the, the yeah. journalist Friends in particular. Yeah, from from the term. <laughs> um, but what would you say, yeah, that's a really good point, actually, that I'm not just talking about right-leaning stuff, I'm actually talking about the kind of far right, but what would be your advice for that? Um, I'd say that, actually, I mean, it's a sacrifice that I'm willing to make, because I do make the clicks, if only so that when I come into contact with people who have a different view, I'm in a better position to try and empathise with their point of view. The whole reason that we, we lost the referendum, the whole reason that I think political discussion today and certainly in the media feels so hateful is that we are not empathising enough with the other side and certainly with people like us, people who, who are fairly privileged or have had access to good education or who simply take an active interest that we, we feel we're in a position of uh, supreme knowledge and this is a very dangerous thing and this is why this was caused for you know, the angry votes on, in, in, in 2016. I think that that's more important. I'm willing to give a bit of money towards their advertising, much as it may be detrimental. Um, I think it, it's the price we have to pay, really. So uh, I guess what you're saying is it's worth being educated on what the other side feels rather than just... Being righteous and, yeah. and not knowing and telling them how it is because it's that sort of attitude that, that's got us into this mess, I think. There are also a lot of other ways of accessing this information if you are adamant that you do not want to click on a Daily Mail article. Connie, you introduced me to a wonderful podcast called The Week in Westminster, Mm. which I will listen to when I'm doing the cooking. And I won't always understand what's going on, not going to lie, but it has made me uh, have a bit more of a balanced opinion. There was an episode the other day where they were talking about how Theresa May is actually a bit more rational than we think she is. Great. But there's also documentaries. You know, we mentioned the uh, Stacey Dooley documentary on the DUP. That was hilarious. I loved it. It was great, but she's really good at getting the stories out of people, you know, and if you can find some sort of outlet on that particular subject that you don't know anything about that really gets into the teeth of it there was a good documentary and i will try and look this up and put it in the show notes but there's a good documentary on um why people voted trump which was very very similar and very informative and very easy to access also another thing there are loads of awesome twitter accounts that will read the daily mail so you don't have to kind of thing and they'll just screen cap loads of stuff so i do click on plenty of links i do think it's important to read this stuff but if there's something that is so vile it makes me feel sick like katie hopkins is this the uh. song katie hopkins calling refugees cockroaches or there was some really bad stuff about trans people recently and i think that was actually maybe in the times it was really gross um i didn't want to click too much but i ended up having to and then i found out that somebody had screen capped all the pages so that's a way if you can find some twitter accounts that will do that for you it means that you can read that but you're not giving them the satisfaction of clicks and that happens a lot with tweets as well instead of just quote tweeting something and then having that retweet going on and on and on they'll take a screen cap 
of the tweet and then they'll tweet that so the actual person who created that horrible horrible thing can't reap the benefits by Mm. saying look at this spike every time i tweet out hate and i think that is one of the ways that as not even left-leaning people but people who don't want to give these people what they want and the attention but at the same time know that they need to amplify the message against it we can do that in like clever ways online and it's about trying to catch up because the far right are better at Twitter than us, certainly in America. So how can we try and get that back? That's something that I've seen a lot on Twitter. It's just really great. Mm. So quick fire round, Connie. I feel like we should have some music. I will see whether I can put it on in the background. So what is the point in parliamentary debates? Uh, lots of people going, yeah, yeah, and boo, and making a lot of noise. Thank you, that was very useful. <laughs> Day-to-day life of an MP, go. Oh my god, uh, getting up at the crack of dawn, reading policy briefings, running to this debate, booking your seat in that debate, going to a select committee, then meeting industry to have a talk about problems in their constituency, going to another debate, making a vote, uh, having the party whip visit you, making sure that you vote in the right way, um, having meetings with other MPs, and on and on it goes, well past midnight in some cases. All for 70 grand a year. To be honest, I'm like, take the money mate, as long as you're doing it. I think so. Day-to-day life of a lobbyist. Oh, uh, getting up slightly later in the morning, looking at what's going on in Parliament, approaching an MP, sending out emails here, there, everywhere, calling the press, writing a press release, making calls to broadcasters, getting back having a quick lunch, um, going back into Parliament, watching a select committee, taking notes, briefing clients, figuring out what announcements are relevant to clients, figuring out what might be useful, which MPs do you want to target and how could you scratch their backs. Going to a party that you created, drinking too much free booze. Yeah. Okay, what the hell are the whips? Ugh, the whips! Have you not seen House of Cards? A party whip is basically, they're the people who make sure that you vote the right way when something is important to the party. How much power does the opposition actually have? Is it really rude to say so little at this point? Um, no, current opposition doesn't have much power. It depends, they have a lot of power when they sit on select committees. If you've got chairs of select committees that are in opposition, then they can have some sway on policy. What the hell is a select committee? A select committee is a group of MPs from across the benches who monitor what every department is doing. So that's one of their roles. They'll check that, say, I don't know, the select committee on environment, for instance, the environmental audit select committee or the select committee for environmental affairs, they will check that DEFRA, the Department for Environment, Food, Rural Affairs, is doing a good job, how they're spending their time, where their policies are falling short. And because select committees are made up of MPs that are Conservatives and Labour, and you'll get an SNP, MP on there as well and it's a variety of MPs. The purpose is for them to listen to what the department has to say. They call witnesses who give evidence on what they've been doing, create a report and in that report they make recommendations to the government. The government then has to respond to the report saying what they're going to do about it and then that winds up influencing policy. Select committees also create reports um, based on the evidence of experts so completely outside of government. They'll call experts from 
random fields all over the place. The Treasury Select Committee at the moment is leading an inquiry on digital currencies, just because no one in Parliament really knows much about this topic yet, so they're having an inquiry to find out more about it, create a report, send it to the government so that they know more about it and that will inform policy too. So it can be on the offensive, uh, but it can also just be a question of informing parliamentarians. Select committees are very useful things. What is the function of the House of Lords? The House of Lords is there to keep the House of Commons in check and to influence policy too. Every time a new law comes into play, it's through a bill which has ping-ponged, is ping-ponged back and forth between the House of Commons and the House of Lords. The House of Lords will make amendments to a bill presented to it by the House of Commons. And the House of Lords has peers of, of all parties and it has non-affiliated peers, peers who are simply there and not part of any party at all and crossbench peers too, so it's, it's a mixture of peers and the interesting thing about the House of Lords at the moment is that if all the peers, of which there are about, well there are almost a thousand of them, if all of them were to show up, the Conservatives would be in a minority. So it has quite a bit of power in the sense that it's easier to make amendments to a bill, for the opposition to make amendments to a bill that it doesn't like in the House of Lords and to send it back to the Commons looking slightly better currently. This is what is going on with the Brexit bill at the moment. The House of Lords keeps making strong amendments to it to soften up the Brexit deal. I think you mean uh, enemy of the people? Yeah, yeah, that's good. And they're doing they're doing a cracking job fighting the good fight. While in the House of Commons it's all a bit of a it's all a bit of a shit show. Okay, this I'd like to remind everyone that this is a quick fire round. So two sentences for these this is about Parliament. Why do they always shout at each other? Well, in some cases they're shouting because it's a, because a vote is taking place. Have you ever heard the speaker say, the eyes have it, the nays don't? Yeah. But often it's just because they're a bunch of, I mean, it's still pretty laddish culture in there. Often it's just, it's just for the fun of it, really, to show support or not. Yes. Who is Mr. Speaker? That's currently John Burko. Um, he basically moderates parliamentary debates, so the speaker will give way to one speaker and then tell people to quiet them down if they're being too lively. You've probably heard, you've seen John Burko on the news saying, you know, Sir, if you are unable to behave yourself in, you know, with decorum and in a polite fashion, then you will be asked to leave this house and um, to basically orchestrate votes uh, in the House of Commons and to make sure that proceedings run smoothly, that people don't speak for too long because the time, the timings tend to be quite short depending on what's going on, but basically to keep everyone in check. It's kind of like being the games master on a board game. Like an umpire. Like an umpire, yeah. Is the speaker an MP? Yeah. Hmm. Hmm. Mm. Our next question, which Holly has decided she wants to include in every single podcast now because it's very telling of a person's personality, disposition, attitude to life, creativity, uniqueness, nerve and talent, childhood trauma. What is your favourite Disney movie? Oh my god, I didn't see that coming. Um, Neither did I, mate, and I'm the one who apparently said it out to hell. Uh, I think, do you know what, I want go with Pocahontas. Cultural appropriation ends happily, didn't actually end happily. No, racism. I know, and she was actually 13, apparently. She was 13, the real Pocahontas. So it's terrible, really, but I just, I love the music, and um, I like the way that it's drawn. And it's also got some beautiful ideas about how we should all be friends and love nature. Yay! Right after we've colonised America. Oh, yeah. The vegan in me loves it. 
So are they vegan and Pocahontas? No, just nature. Do you see them fishing? Oh, fuck's sake. Spinning fuck you, Pocahontas. The they kill animals with their bare hands. And tools. I would have watched Pocahontas again, and now I will not. And now we don't have to do that, and we're completely desensitised the idea that meat used to be an animal that we used to have to kill with our bare hands. Moving on. Which is why I'm a vegan. When do you ever turn off your... I guess the word is politics, actually, not activism. When do you ever turn off your lobbyist head? Um... I try to turn it... I mean, I, I do turn it off as soon as I get home. It's funny, at the weekends I don't ever open a single paper. It's pretty much the last thing I want to do because I spent all week doing it. Unless you're reading the Sunday Times Star magazine. I was going to say, the weekend one's normally the one with all the fluff. Yeah, I avoid it. Kate's addicted. It's a little Sunday ritual. It is a Sunday ritual. It reminds me to relax and it reminds me of growing up in Sussex and having a roast and reading the Sunday Times magazine in the garden. That's adorable. Yeah. But yeah, you as a lobbyist, you've constantly got to be careful how you say things, how you phrase things, which is what makes it quite tiring sometimes. You don't want to put your foot in it. And you constantly have to be pretty diplomatic. We're built to be slippery fish, so we can use anyone. <laughs> or, you know, it's all about networking as well. So you never know, I don't know, a friend that you make today who's a parliamentary assistant in this person's office, their MP might one day become a minister. So they may come in handy and you've got to constantly nurture nurture those. I would fucking hate that. <laughs> what? You well, say that's so abrasive. You say that, Holly, but you work in an industry where the person that you were friends with when you did a really, you know, low-budget fringe production a few years ago may end up running the national in ten years' time. But also I work in an industry where the person I was honest to <laughs> may not ever hire me again. That's not going in the podcast. No, that's not going in the podcast. Anyway, have you got some sunshine for us? I have a little bit of sunshine, and I was reminded of this while you were giving us all the information on the questions that were sent in. And that is that in my first year of university slash drama school, we were taken down to Westminster. We were, you know, 18 to 21-year-olds taken down to Westminster, and they said, right, make a devised piece of theatre about this. And we looked up. And someone behind me said, I mean, they could be playing polo in there, we just don't know. And that was the moment where we all realised that no one knew anything about what was going on in Parliament. And it is wonderful to have someone here that does, because, let's face it, no one is particularly <laughs> clever. I don't know what I'm saying. I'm neither of I just stopped things. saying, that sentence just went bleh. <laughs> All that stuff you see on TV, they're all just actors. They're not real people. Yeah. <laughs> they're all actors. They're just playing polo in that. a studio in there. If they were actors, they'd be much better at it. Mm, oh, yeah. Just wooden, some of them, yeah. My piece of sunshine is there's been a period poverty law that's been going through mm. various stages. I don't know a huge amount about it, but I know that it started off as something small and now it's become a really big deal and it's looking like we're gonna win that fight and I think that's great because it's a little bit of feminism that's creeping into parliament Mm. and loads of people seem to be backing it and it's just going to not do everything that needs to be done but it's just a great thing in these times where we often feel like there's a big attack on feminism and it's one of those moments where it feels like the me too moment and the enough is enough moment in time Mm. is working so 
and we'll get the upskirt one done as well once yes we i was about to mention the upskirting one on, on you know riffing on what you were just saying that's going really well i think that no sane mp is i mean clearly christopher chope is an, an exception to the rule but no sane mp is is opposing that and i'm pretty sure it's going to happen it's going to go through so Good. really pleased about that that's a pretty happy end yeah. so let's just do a quick plug at the end of this um I'm guessing that you will not be sharing your Twitter or anything with us. She does have a really fabulous Instagram with uh. one post. <laughs> I'm a disgrace to the freshman of lobbyists. I don't even have a Twitter account. So we'll just do us then. We are on Twitter at DiversifyPod or on Instagram at DiversifyPodcast. Kate is currently in charge of uh, Instagram. Don't tell that. And she's bloody great at it. I'm learning stuff just by going on Instagram. Um, my Twitter is our team Q, our as in us, team as in uh, I'm team gay, and Q as in K. And I am on Instagram and Twitter with the same, what do you call it? Username. I am at Kate Lois, L-O-I-S, Elliot, two L's, two T's. Oh. That's Holly going, I didn't know that your surname was spelt like that. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for listening to another episode of Diversify. This has been a lot of fun and uh, go be an activist. Made up the and we used to be in a musical improv group together. Ah.